0: On October 19th, 1781, General Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at the Battle of Yorktown. Now, this was a pivotal moment in the Revolutionary War because it signaled a shift in the tide and the momentum of this conflict. Uh, This surrender marked the moment where it became clear that America was going to gain their independence. Now, uh, this kind of period in our history, most of us knew nothing about until several years ago when uh, the Broadway hit Hamilton came onto the scene. Now, how many of you, your knowledge of U.S. history dramatically changed because of that show? Hands up. All right, the rest of you aren't telling the truth. Now, near the end of the first act of Hamilton... Uh, what you see is a depiction of this moment. Uh, it looks more like this, but what you see happen is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is kind of recapping this event, this surrender of Cornwallis to George Washington, and Hamilton narrates the closing action as such. And if you know it, you can wrap along. We negotiate the terms of surrender. I see George Washington smile. We escort their men out of Yorktown. They stagger home single file. Tens of thousands of people flood the streets. There are screams and church bells ringing. And as our fallen foes retreat, I hear the drinking song they're singing. The world turned upside down. Now, this phrase and this song, the world turned upside down, this was, uh, legend has it, a British song Uh, that came in the 1600s. It was about this moment in time where British Parliament created this decree uh, that placed limitations on the way that uh, the people of England could celebrate Christmas. Parliament wanted uh, Christmas to be this solemn, kind of sober moment, and the people didn't want that. And so from kind of its inception, this song has been known to kind of capture the moment when a few people uh, shifted the way that the larger majority experienced life, the way that the few upset the status quo of the many. The world turned upside down. Now, this phrase, though, it has its origins in the Book of Acts. This is a book that we have been talking about for the last 27 years here at the Grove. And I promise you this is the last sermon I will preach on the book of Acts for the next calendar year. I'm not going to mention it. We're not going to refer to it. We're going to pretend that it was left out of the canon of Scripture uh, because this is week 11 in the book of Acts. But the point over the last 11 weeks about preaching in the book of Acts has been to show that not just uh, the things that happened then, but the way that the things that happened then have relevance in our lives today. The book of Acts captures the movement of the Holy Spirit in those first followers of Jesus and the way that movement transformed into what we know as the Christian faith and the Christian church today. Now, what I want to do in just the short time that we have together is to look at where that phrase, the world turned upside down, comes from and to show how it is connected to the way that movement spread into the world And the opportunity that we have as a church to participate in the very same thing. So let's jump to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. By now you should know where that book is in your Bible. So you can pull out your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, laptops, whatever you have with you this morning, and read along. And I'll also put it on the screen for us to participate together. So in this uh, chapter, what we see... Are uh, we see some of the disciples or the uh, the apostles? This is Paul and some of his companions. They're going through kind of the known world at that time, spreading this message. And typically, what happens is they would come into a city, they would go into the synagogue, and Paul or one of the other kind of early leaders of the church would begin to teach about this man named Jesus and his resurrection and what that signified and the shift that that signified in the lives of the people who would hear it. Now. As you could imagine, uh, the people who were hearing this didn't always respond favorably to this news or to this message, to this indication that the Messiah had come, that they had missed this opportunity. And so there would always be kind of some kind of contention and some disagreement anytime that the disciples would go into these places to begin to teach about Jesus. And this is where we pick up. So what has happened is Paul has gone in, done his usual thing. He's begun to teach. People have gotten mad. And they grab a bunch of them and they bring them down in kind of this kind of mock trial uh, to accuse them of kind of stirring up trouble. And this is where we see that phrase, the world turned upside down. So this is the Jewish leaders talking about those early followers of Jesus. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. In the same way that this song, in the, in this, of the same name, was used in the 1600s to describe the act of a few to upset and, you know turn over the establishment created by the many. the way that this song was played at the surrender in Yorktown when this kind of small ragtag band of, you know, what would become American forces created a surrender in this large British Empire the way that it upset the established order that began and led to the creation of something brand new in the world. What we see happening in the 17th chapter is the very same thing. A small group of people, through their actions, through what we'll see, their values, through their beliefs, through their conviction to this cause, have upset everything that everybody's known to be true at that time. And so they're referred to as people who have turned the world upside down. And this is how they did it. They're all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. These people have turned the world upside down by acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Now, sociologists over the last, you know, couple of decades have really started to pay attention to the way that movements are created, the way that they're formed and the way that they're spread. Now this isn't limited to religious movements, but it's uh, oftentimes easiest to identify in religious movements, but there is a pattern in which these, these movements begin to spread. And so there are some really fascinating books if you're like me and a pastor and care about all this stuff, they have mapped out some of these patterns in sociology onto the way that this first church, begin to kind of create this shift in the culture, to create this movement that went from maybe a few hundred followers in the 30 and 40s to tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands just a hundred years later. This, I mean, just rapid rise in the number of Christians in the known world at the time to eventually you get to the point today where there's over two a billion with a B Christians in the world. How does this happen? Well, It happens through relationships most easily. They can be close relationships. They can be casual relationships. They can be um, just these inconsequential relationships, but people begin to observe a difference in actions in people's lives. They inquire about the actions they observe. In that process, they discover values that might be slightly different or dramatically different to their own that are anchored in and rooted in a belief system Uh, that is new to them in some way, shape, or form. Actions into values into beliefs. Now, what people have also noticed is that the same way uh, that new people come into contact with the religion and religion begins to spread is the same way that it's actually the opposite manner, but the same process through which people are formed in religion. So what do I mean by that? So the way that religion spreads is you come in contact with somebody with different actions than you, you inquire into values and then discover beliefs. What we do here at the church is not tell you, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. No, we start with beliefs. We start at the core and we kind of share how those beliefs should inform your values and those values should impact your actions. So it's the same process. It's just traveling different directions on this pathway. What I think is so fascinating is in this one passage about the way that these people turn the world upside down is you see this same pattern. Let me show you. So these people have turned the world upside down. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor saying that there's another king named Jesus. So here we see the first thing that they observe is their actions in the way that they are different to the established norms and customs of the culture that they find themselves in. They're acting contrary. It's a difference in action. What are they acting contrary to? The decrees of the emperor. Now, the decrees of the emperor established the rules, the customs, the values that people adhere to. So what they're noticing in this very first century context is the way in which these actions go against the established customs and values of the known culture at the time. How are they able to do this? Why do they choose to do this? And what it tells us? They're saying that there is another king named Jesus. This statement about a different king other than Caesar named Jesus is a statement of belief. And so what we see in this passage is this pattern of action, of values, and beliefs. And again, like I said before, in the church context, this is how we try to teach. This is the way that we try to instruct. We start with beliefs. What is it that we believe? We did a whole series, I don't remember, nine months ago, ten months ago, on the Creed. The reason we teach that is because it's important to understand these foundational beliefs, not just to talk at you about the actions that we should participate in or the actions that we should avoid as people of faith, but what are the fundamental beliefs that we should hold on to about who God is and how God operates in the world and what our relationship is to the way that God operates. So it starts with beliefs. It grows and it expands into our values. The things that we believe about who God is, how the world works, and our relationship to God should inform the values that we hold, the values that we hold about kindness, generosity, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, tolerance, all of these things. Our beliefs should inform our values. Now, what's true is that independent of what you believe, your beliefs inform your values. They just might not be a totally Christian belief set. You might have some combination of Christian and secular belief. It doesn't matter kind of who you are or where you are in the world, we all hold some belief system that informs the things that we prioritize, the things that we value, the way that we spend our time, our money, our energy. All of this is informed by our beliefs and manifests in our values. Sometimes when you kind of meet a group of people for the first time you interact with them and you're like, God, these, these feel like my people. Like these, these are my people. What you're tapping into either subconsciously or consciously is an alignment most likely in values, uh, most probably identifiable in their actions, but you're like, God, there's something about these people that feel congruent with the way that I choose to live my life. This is why we think small groups are so important here at the church, is to create intentional opportunities to put you into relationships with people who share similar values and similar belief systems. Or to the contrary, you've been in a room or an environment or a business meeting, and it feels wildly uncomfortable, maybe even in a school setting, and you feel like that sense of panic, that sense of a little hesitation or uncertainty because you recognize in that moment, you are surrounded by a person or a group of people who have dissimilar values as you. And oftentimes the problem comes when those values manifest as actions. Kids, this is why parents, care so much about who you spend time with, who you hang out with, who your friends are, it's because ultimately we all carry a belief system that informs our values that manifest into our actions. Your parents aren't trying to be mean, it's out of love and care. In the same way that we here at The Grove care about your relationships and the quality and the tenor of those relationships because it's so tied to our values and our belief system. And then the last we've talked about is the way that we stack our actions on our beliefs and our values. There's no way to hold beliefs and values without them spilling over into your actions. We talked about this the last two weeks with some of the commitments that we've identified that the first Christians made. The way that they were committed to wholehearted generosity or the way that they were committed to radical hospitality. This was an outpouring of an outward expression of these values and beliefs that they held about who God was, about how God created the world and about their role and place in it. And because of this, because of their beliefs, because of their values, and the way that those values manifested into actions, those first followers of Jesus were people who were described as those who turned the world upside down. And I don't think this is like, pastoral hyperbole, but I think the opportunity for us is still the same. It just looks wildly different. There's not a whole big world that we have the opportunity to to kind of demonstrate this in, but we have our individual worlds that we can share this, that we can allow our beliefs and values and actions to create an opportunity for people to recognize a different way of living. A different kind of life that's organized by a different set of values in the world offers us a way to think differently about what's important, about what's not important, about how we should spend our time, what our schedule should look like, how we should construct our relationships and interact in our relationships, who we should be in relationship with, the way that we should spend our money, the things that we consume or don't consume, and I'm not just talking about food and drink, but also media, all of this Informs our values and our beliefs, which manifest in our actions. The opportunity is still present today. The very first sermon in this series, we talked about some of the impact that the early church had, and we looked at this letter written in like 130 AD, so 100 ish years after Jesus' resurrection, and it's written by a man, or a letter to a person named Diognitus. And this is what it says, and I'm going to remind us of this. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. There is something different in the way that they live their lives. They live a different kind of life in texture and in character. To sum it up in a word, what the soul is to the body That are Christians in the world. What the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. That was true then, and it is still true today. What you see down on the ground before me is a map. If you can't tell, this is a map of Dallas, and kind of the larger Dallas area. So this map, in it, in the very center, is this this location, this building the collection of where we gather on Sunday mornings. I do not think it is a coincidence that this church is centrally located to so much of the Metroplex. What I see is an opportunity for us to be the soul of the world here in the city of Dallas. Now this isn't kind of some abstract pie in the sky. Now let's go out and change the world. go, go get them team, ready, set, break. That's not what I mean. What I mean is collectively and individually, we have the opportunity to impact the people in our orbit, in our spheres, by our actions, by our values and by our beliefs. What this looks like is your friend groups. What this looks like is your book clubs, your sports teams, your extracurricular activities. It looks like the parents of the kids who are on the same teams as your kids. It looks like the places that you hang out socially. Maybe it's a gym. Maybe it's somewhere else. It looks like your neighbors in your neighborhood, the other kids at school, your families at work, all of the different expressions and iterations of your social network. If you extend those branches of that tree, that's your world. That is the opportunity that we each have. Now, in a second, what we're gonna do is we're gonna invite you up uh, to bring forward your commitment for 2022. Financial commitments are just one aspect, but it's an important one. Jesus teaches a lot about money and he says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Not exclusively, but including your generosity, it reveals values. It reveals belief systems. And that's why this action of making a commitment for the coming year is so important. And so what we're going to ask you to do is as you come forward, we're going to ask you to take the commitment card that we gave you. And while the band leads us in a song, we're going to ask you to just to spend some time praying over it, thinking about what wholehearted giving looks like for your family, or for your household, or for you individually. And then once you fill it out, I hope you'll say a prayer over it, that God would bless your generosity to use it to reach your world and you'd bring it up. And as you come up, it can be where you work. It can be where you live. It can be where your kids go to school, but some physical location about where you have the opportunity to turn the world upside down. Now, if you're bad with maps, you're in good company. I have no natural sense of direction. We have the church marked as a general guide. And if it starts to get full, cause we all live in similar areas, just start placing it on the map. But what we want this to do is to serve as a symbolic reminder that in totality, once we're all done, what you will see is we pretty much cover most of this map in some way, shape or form, whether it's where we work, whether it's where we play, go to school or live. What is true then is still true today. Based on our belief in Jesus Christ, based on the values that we have received from that faith and the ways that they manifest into our actions, we have the power to turn the world upside down. And I have every confidence that God will help us do so. So we'll invite the band up here in a second. I'm going to go ahead and place this somewhere up here where nobody lives. And someone's like, that's my house. You can just pin over it. But let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll invite you to begin to participate in kind of this commitment moment. Again, if you don't have a card yet, didn't get one in the mail, or didn't know it was Commitment Sunday, we have them in the back, and the opportunity, opportunity for you to get up and to go grab one. This is not some organized like, all right, we're gonna send this section for, this is uh, spend some time thinking about it, spend some time praying over it. And when you're ready as a family or a couple or an individual, we hope that you'll come forward and that you'll pin it on this map. Let me pray for our time together and for this moment that will follow. Gracious God, just in the same way that your Holy Spirit empowered those first followers to turn the world upside down, we ask that your Holy Spirit continue to do the same in our lives. In the places and in the ways that we have created a world full of relationships, God, equip us, inspire and encourage us to allow our actions and values and beliefs to turn our worlds upside down so that people would see our good deeds and to glorify you because of it. Lord, bless this time. Bless these people. And bless us as a church. We pray all this in your name. Amen.